coming towards the end of this sermon series that we've been in, in the first and second book of Thessalonians. Next week we'll finish this series in chapter 3, and so we find ourselves today in chapter 2. We're going to look at all 17 verses here in this letter. So I hope and trust you found your way uh, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We as, as humans, as people, and I would say even as a culture, are fascinated with some sort of idea of an impending doom that is to come. Uh, whether it's the doomsday prepper or the, the, the zombie apocalypse that people talk about that is coming, there is a fascination of how could this all come to an end. Uh, not too long ago, there was a movie uh, that the title was just Armageddon. Uh, the movie was all about the coming to the end of uh, th- this world, this creation in which we live in. Now, I would argue that, you know, most of the superhero movies that have been made over the last 10 years have had apocalyptic undertones. You have some sort of alien force, some sort of creature that is threatening to de- destroy everything, and some hero swoops in at the last second to save the day. There's a fascination that we have with the thought of, of the end. I think this is telling about the reality of our knowledge of a creator God and that this world exists not by circumstance or happenstance or random chance, but that there is a purpose to everything. And as we've talked about before, uh, God in his purposeful sovereign will is moving all of time and space and history, this redemptive history to this climactic end where Christ will return as we've considered here so often in these two letters. And so we do not know time or the season. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, it's not for you to know times or seasons or epochs that the Father has laid in his own authority. We don't know when the end is coming. We've been warned and challenged here in these two letters to be on guard, to be awake, to not be drunk, but to be sober, to not be asleep, but to be awake, uh, because we don't know when the time will come. Scripture, though, speaks of signs that point us to the fact that the end is near. There's Word of darkness coming, wars, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, increased sins, living in the days of Noah. And while the outside world looking in wonders with some sense of anxiety and fear and fascination in what will happen in the end, the hope for the believer today is that in the end, those who love the truth will be saved. I want you to follow along with me beginning in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, 
whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May God bless the reading of his word. In light of this truth that in the end those who love the truth will be saved, in chapter 2 here Paul draws our attention first to an apostasy that is to arise and a man of sin who is to appear. Uh, he, he talks about here the coming of the Lord, and, and you know full well that we've addressed this idea of the coming of the Lord in detail already in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, this day when Christ returns to take the church to be with himself, and then the day of the Lord where the, the wrath of God is poured out on the enemies of God. And when Paul writes this, the, the first letter to them, he potentially has in mind a problem that the church in Thessalonica is facing. We don't know with certainty. But here, in this second letter, in chapter 2, one of the primary reasons that he wrote this letter is to draw attention to a false teaching that has arisen in the church in Thessalonica. And potentially, he hopes that what he dealt with, the end times and the coming of the Lord in the first book, would have uh, squelched the problem of this false teaching, but it hasn't. And so he addresses it here very specifically, and he, he talks about this false teaching. This false teaching is shaking the very foundation of the church there in Thessalonica. The people find themselves alarmed and deceived. He says, let no one deceive you in verse 3. What is this false teaching that has presented itself in Thessalonica? Well, the teaching is this, that the day of the Lord has already come. The problem with this false teaching is not only that it has left them alarmed and shaken and potentially deceived, but at the heart of this false teaching is a denial of the reality of the resurrection to come and the day of the Lord to come. This false teaching has over-spiritualized these things. And, and, and we're reminded, as we've said before, the coming of the Lord is a real historical, literal event to come. It will not be hidden it will not be something that happens in one part of the world and some of us miss out on it. No, it will be very public. When Christ returns, we will know with certainty. If you remember back in chapter 4, uh, verse 16, it talked about uh, this coming of the Lord to take his church up in the rapture. And you hear there, the, it says it will be with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet. And then last week in chapter 1, verse 7, we saw there in the latter part of verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, it will not be hidden. It will not be a secret. And so the hope that the church in Thessalonica is supposed to have in the face of persecution and affliction that we've touched on so often in this series 
is being rattled by this false teaching that Jesus has already come. You see there the word shaken in verse 2. Not to be quickly shaken, this word speaks of an earthquake, shaking a building to its very foundations. He also says they're not to be alarmed or troubled by this message. This is what false teachings do. They shake and rattle and alarm and, 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 and trouble the church. And so he says to them, regardless of how this message comes to you, it's not true. He says there in in verse 2, towards the end, he says whether it's a spirit, a spoken word, even if you receive a letter that has been signed by us, if it's to the effect that Christ has already come, do not believe it. He says there, let no one deceive you. He tells them to resist the lies of Satan, to be grounded in the truth. Later in verse 5, he speaks to the fact that he's already told them these things. He's already revealed this truth to them. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And so he gives them reasons then to know that the day of the Lord has yet to come. And so primarily the focus here is that the day of the Lord will not be a secret. It will not be hidden. We will know when Christ returns with certainty. A real historical event that is to come. But notice here that he draws their attention to two things that are to precede the coming of Christ in this way. Now, there are other things in Scripture and other parts of Scripture that we're told are to happen before Christ's return. But here in particular, in this, in this portion of Scripture, he, he draws their attention to two things. And you see it there in verse 3. He says, For that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. What is he talking about here? Well, let's unpack that for a moment. First, the rebellion. What is this rebellion that he speaks of? This is, maybe your translation says it is a a falling away. There is a great apostasy that is to come, an abandoning of the faith. That there is coming a day on this day when the rebellion comes, when a mass exodus will happen among the visible church of people who once professed faith in Christ and clinged to the essentials of the gospel will flee and, 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 and leave those things to follow after something that is false and it is not true. An abandoning of sound doctrine. People who once professed faith in Christ will turn their backs on Christ and his bride. One reformer said, it will be a revolt of the visible church. And so make no mistake about it, this rebellion that he's speaking of here is a great moment of apostasy that is to come. But dear friends, apostasy has been happening throughout church history. Over the past 2,000 years, we have seen false teachings and false doctrines arising You think of the Roman Catholic Church as it rose to its power, began to teach a false gospel that salvation comes by works. Salvation comes by following after this one pope who has been labeled the the, the head of the church in a way that is not doctrinally sound. We've seen heresy throughout the history of the church and even in our own day in something like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That says, as you come to Jesus, you will be wealthy and healthy, and you will be prosperous in this life. A false gospel, this type of apostasy exists today. Not to the level that he speaks of here that is to come, but it is here today. And when we hear of apostasy, and we see entire denominations turning away from the essentials of the gospel, 
And when we see loved ones and family members turning away from the faith, it should cause us to grieve. But we should not be surprised. It's not a matter of will apostasy happen, dear friends. It's a matter of will we be found faithful. It's happening now. And it will happen climactically here on this day. Notice the second thing that he draws our attention to. This man of lawlessness is revealed, or it says there, the son of destruction. This great apostasy will be led by this one, this man of lawlessness or man of sin, this son of destruction. Some of your translations will say the son of perdition. I believe Paul is using these two titles and pointing to two historical figures to help illuminate who this man of lawlessness is. First, the man of sin. There was this emperor, Antiochus IV, who was a great persecutor of the people of God, and he called himself God Manifest. And he was known by the title of the man of sin. The second title there, the son of perdition, that should sound familiar to you if you're a student of the word of God. That is the title that was given to Judas, the one who was among the fold of the disciples, who was with Christ every day for that time of Jesus' ministry, and he turned and abandoned Christ. And so this one who will come, this man of lawlessness, is the personification of sin and pride. We know this one as the Antichrist, a counterfeit Messiah that is yet to come who is diametrically opposed to Christ. He is against Christ. He is anti-Christ. And he will raise himself up as supreme. He will turn many away from the truth. He will look to usurp the role of God himself. You see there at the end of of verse 4, it says, He takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The words that Paul used here are very similar to the words that Daniel used in, in Daniel chapter 11 when it said, The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. And so Paul uses these words to describe this one as as a person who embodies the ultimate totalitarian rule. Who will come and persecute the bride of Christ. But he's not just some worldly ruler. He's a Judas. It says there, he takes his seat in the temple of God. This is not some foreign adversary. This is not a foreign terrorist. This is a domestic one. He will rise up among the ranks of the church, claiming to be among the people of God. And he will be among the fold of God, not just claiming to be of God or from God, but claiming to be God himself by his works and his actions. And he will have a place among the visible church. And people will follow after him in sin and rebellion. He will be the chief representation of sin. And so it's important here for a moment for us to pause and understand that although we we draw our attention to this Antichrist, this one, this man of lawlessness, at its core, sin is pride and wanting to be God. And so in our sin nature, each of us possesses this spirit of Antichrist. We are set against God. We are enemies of God in our flesh. 
Sin is antichrist and hatred of God. And this is why so many will follow after the man of lawlessness. Because again, he's not a foreign alien power, but he represents all of humanity and he will claim to be of the church. Now, at this point, you might be saying to yourself, this is, this is scary stuff. But the point that Paul is, is making here in writing about the man of lawlessness is not that we would fear. So do not fear the man of lawlessness, but here in these first four, four verses, we're reminded rather to grieve sin and be led to repentance. The man of lawlessness will call the bride of Christ or those who claim to be a part of the bride of Christ to follow after him in sin and rebellion against God. So the charge for us as the church is not to embrace sin and be led to rebellion, but rather we would grieve sin for what it is and be led to repentance each and every day, not falling into the pattern of this world, the pattern of Antichrist. And so we, we see this here in these first four, four verses, the revealing of this one. But there is an encouragement to be found in verses 5 through 12. None of this is happening outside of God's sovereign will. In verses 5 through 12, we see a restraining of the man of sin. It tells us there in verses 5 through 12 that God restrains him from coming into the world until an appointed time. And so there is a season in the end times where the, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, will be restrained by God's sovereign hand. But there's something really important for us here to understand. There is already a spirit of Antichrist in this world. 1 John 2.22 says this, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Anyone or anything that stands against Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords is a form of Antichrist. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3 says this, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. It is in the world today. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world today. Finally, in 1 John 2.18, John says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. We are in the last days, dear friend. And the spirit of Antichrist is here. There are those now in these very moments who are gathering in buildings that are called churches who are drawing people away from the gospel. There are those now who are rejecting the truth of the gospel, the word of the gospel, who are rejecting the, the love of God made manifest in Christ himself and believing lies. But again... This one is being kept back until the end. He is being restrained by the Spirit of God. And so this all will happen according to God's perfect plan. And notice in verse 8 it says, Christ then will come and destroy him. Verse 8, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He will be consumed by the breath, the spirit of the mouth. He will be destroyed by Christ appearing, and all those who swear their allegiance to Antichrist will be destroyed as well. And so don't miss this. Antichrist will come, the text tells us. 
and he will have his moment to seduce the world. But Paul also tells us Christ will come. And when Christ comes, he will crush the head of the Antichrist. One final thing to note here, who is it that follows the Antichrist? He says there, the coming of the lawless one is by Satan's activity. And so we see power and signs and wonders and wicked deception. Apparently this one will have the ability to do the miraculous, to draw these many to himself. And notice who it is that has been, have been drawn to him. It is those who are perishing. Why are they perishing? The end of verse 10 says, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They have chosen to follow after the deception and the sin and the rebellion of the Antichrist. And so verse 11 tells us that out of this, God gives them over to a strong delusion to believe what is false. And then verse 12, it says, In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God accomplishes his perfect will by the man of lawlessness. And so the text makes it very clear there are two types of people. There are those who love the truth and find salvation in Christ. And there are those who despise the truth and do not find salvation. When we think about the Antichrist, whether you've been a Christian for many years, and you've heard about the Antichrist before, maybe you're a new believer, and this is the first time you've ever heard about Antichrist. Sometimes our response is, is, is to be kind of skeptical and say, how is it that people who profess faith in Christ could be swept away by something that is so against Christ? Or maybe you find yourself thinking this morning, this could never happen to me. In the midst of that that speculation, I want you to consider just the day that we live in and the number of false teachers that live in our day and the thousands and I would say millions of people who follow after these false teachers today. The number of false teachers, the influence they have, the reach that they have around the globe. People all over the world are listening to the teaching and reading the books of these false teachers. And we're reminded of our proneness to wander off. To follow after this type of apostasy. So whether it's the Joel Osteens of the world, or the Kenneth Copelands, or the Creflo Dollars, or the Jesse Duplantises, or the Benny Hens, there are thousands of people who flock to these false teachers week in and week out. And they're being told that they are part of the fold of God. And so again, the application here from Paul is not to fear the man of lawlessness, but here in these verses in particular, we're reminded to hold fast to the word of God. Not to follow after men, not to follow after celebrities, not to follow after trends, but to hold fast to the word. I draw your attention again to verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He already told them the truth of this, and they are prone to fall in line with this false teaching. Later in verse 15, he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Remember what he said earlier in verse 2? He told them to not be alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or by a letter. And so the means in which the false teaching comes is the same. 
the false teacher stands behind a pulpit on Sunday morning and wears a suit and tie. And we must be on guard. We must hold fast to the word of truth because there is a false word. There is a false gospel that exists in our day, but the text tells us there is also a word that is sure. The word of God, Genesis to Revelation, is perfect and supreme and authoritative and sufficient in all things. And so, dear friends, read the word. Swim in the word. Be a student of the word. Memorize the word. Meditate on the word. Sit under sound teachers who rightly divide the word of God. Put it on the doorpost of your homes. Talk about it as you walk in the way. Teach it to your children. When you rise in the morning, think about and dwell on the word of God. And when you lay your head at night, do the same. And when you wake up in the middle of the night, may our thoughts and our attention go to the word of God. Now, how do we live in the light of the coming of this man of lawlessness? Well, I turn our attention finally as we conclude to verses 13 through 17. And I want us to see the comfort that we have in light of the man of sin. Now, again, I've said already, the point of this part of the letter is not to frighten the church in Thessalonica or to us, but we see rather in verses 13 through 17, the point of talking about the man of lawlessness is to comfort us. And so follow this. In verses 1 through 12, he's just walked through this overwhelming apocalyptic reality. When we looked at the story of, the, the, of Noah and the flood, we talked about how you know, parents will decorate their children's room with, with the flood story, right? I doubt anyone in the history of the world has ever decorated their child's nursery with an Antichrist theme. This is not a story that you tell your children at bedtime. It's overwhelming. It lends itself to be shaken and alarmed and deceived. But notice what he says as soon as he comes out of describing all of this that is to happen. Look at verse 13. But church. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. He gives thanks in the midst of this for the church, and we are reminded too to give thanks as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in all circumstances, even when Antichrist is on the horizon, we give thanks. And why is it that Paul and Silas and Timothy give thanks for them? Because God chose you as the first fruits, he says, to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief and truth. Verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are reminded again by Paul in his writing to the church in Thessalonica of our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. The fact that before the creation of the world, it says there uh, in, in verse uh, 13, God chose you as the first fruits. That, that means there before the foundations of the world. Before the world was even created, God set out to bring about a plan of redemption and draw a people to himself. To save a people for himself. And the church, those who possess saving faith in Christ are justified. We are in good standing before a holy and righteous God. And we will be sanctified, he says there, by the spirit and belief in the truth. God will have his way with his people and his church. And we will become more and more like Jesus, even in the face of persecution and affliction. And finally, he says that we will be glorified. To this he called you. 
verse 14 so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the very thing we saw at the end of of chapter 1, verse 12 last week, where it says that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, that there is coming a day, brother and sister in Christ, where we will leave this earth and pass into the next, and the glory of Christ will shine in and through us, and we will be made like Jesus. This is our hope. You are secure in Christ, and nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. You will be carried to the end, and one day you will be made like Jesus. And this serves as our comfort in the face of the man of lawlessness. Look at verses 16 and 17. He mentions the word comfort there twice. Again, the word comfort has been one of the theme words throughout both of these letters. Verse 16, may, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort, And good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And so he tells the church there in Thessalonica, Christ has not yet come back. There are some tribulations that you must face before then. He says to them, but but you will not be shaken. You will not be alarmed or deceived because you are in Christ and you will be kept to the end. And so again, the application for us is not to fear the man of lawlessness, but finally here we see that we are to stand firm in the hope and eternal comfort that we have in Christ. That nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, and God will not crush us under the weight of his wrath because Christ has already taken that in our place. And although persecution will come, And maybe in our lifetime, the man of lawlessness will come. He may torment you. He may even kill you, but he cannot destroy you. The man of lawlessness will not and cannot destroy the bride of Christ. And so the application here is there in verse 15. Stand firm. Stand firm in the faith, in sound doctrine, in the gospel. As we, in our day, watch entire denominations shift away from the authority of Scripture to embrace the teachings of the culture, may we be people in a church who stands firm. That we would hold fast to the hope of the gospel that we've sung about and celebrated in this place today even if it causes us our jobs, or maybe it causes us as a church our tax exemption, maybe it even causes us our lives, would we stand firm? Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. I want to close by reading Jesus' words in Luke 21. And turn with me there as we close. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28. Here Jesus is talking about some end times events that are to come. And I think very often in our conversation we tend to talk about just the confusion and the chaos and the perplexity of the world that we live in today. And if we're not careful, we will lose track of or lose sight of what the task is for us at hand by the noise, by the the chaos, the perplexity around us. And so in light of all we've talked about today, I want to close just by reading the words of Christ here. Heed 
Heed the words of Christ, beginning in verse 25 of Luke chapter 21. Jesus said, There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and the earth distress of nations. In perplexity, because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the power, powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when they see these things, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I wonder today where you stand in regards to this coming Messiah. And if you've ever put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to consider today that you're not guaranteed the next moment, you're not guaranteed the next hour, the next day, the next week. And that God has demonstrated his love for you and that while you were a wretched sinner, God sent his son to this earth in the form of a man to live a sinless life and die on a cross in your place, taking on that wrath of God that each of us deserves. And he did not stay dead, but as we just saw in baptism, he rose victoriously from the grave and he ascended to the Father and he's coming again for his church. This is the gospel. This is good news. I want to plead with you today to consider the reality of this truth. Consider the reality of your sin and your rebellion against a holy God. And would you look to the cross today in the blood of Christ in faith and repentance to be saved? Let's pray.